Hello, my friends. This is life coach Mike Chargman, and welcome to an episode of Mike's Search for Meaning. I'm after some big questions. Why are we here? What makes a fulfilling life? How can we grow individually and collectively? Each episode, I'll dive deep with leaders who are doing great work in the world and see how they organize their life. Books read, value systems, resources used, and stories that show how each of you can create the life and the world of your dreams. Welcome to episode 107 of the Mike's Search for Meaning podcast. My guest today is Jeff Lieberman. The main way that you can connect with Jeff is at the sleepawake.camp website. I will make sure to link to this in the show notes. And by the end of this conversation, you will be very well versed in what Sleep Awake Camp is and the powerful experience and container that is being created there. I also donate to and raise awareness for the organization of my guest choice. And Jeff has selected Inside Circle an organization on the West Coast that is doing really powerful healing work with men who are currently and formerly incarcerated. It's really wonderful organization. So please join me in donating. There will also be a link in the show notes to Inside Circle. So if you want to check out more about their work, please follow the link in the show notes. I've heard Jeff make the observation several times that he learned about quantum mechanics before he learned anything about his emotions or his interiority in any meaningful way, including how to flourish, how to live a meaningful life. The reason that you are tuned into this show is to be a little bit more clued into these types of things. What makes us grow and flourish and embody the life that we want to live? And as a trained scientist who also has now a really fundamental and deep understanding of the human experience, including spirituality and things that are much bigger than us, Jeff has a really unique lens on what it means to create flourishing. And his most recent project, I shouldn't say his most recent project because there are many people involved, but The most recent project that he is very heavily involved in is called Sleep Awake Camp. And at Sleep Awake Camp, they teach all of the essentials that Jeff realized were missing in his life. It's targeted for currently 18 to 30-year-olds. But I think that no matter what your age is, you are going to learn a lot from this conversation because it's a really enormously robust program and curriculum that they have at Sleep Awake. It teaches all of the things that contribute to a flourishing life. How do we relate to ourselves? How do we connect with others deeply? How do we nourish our bodies with nutrition, with movement? How do we create from our heart and play in a way that we did when we were little children before we had stories and scripts about what we should and shouldn't do? And overall, It creates this body of work that enables aliveness for all of its participants. And in this conversation, you'll be able to hitch a ride on that aliveness. I really love who Jeff is as a person and what he's creating in this world. We speak beyond sleep awake camp in this conversation as well. And so you're going to learn a lot about what it means to be a human. And that's the reason you're tuned in here. So I'll let Jeff take the conversation from here. And with all of that said, Settle in, take a deep breath, 
and enjoy this conversation with Jeff Lieberman. Hey, Jeff. We're live and welcome to Mike's Search for Meaning. Thanks for having me, Mike. Yeah. Let's search for some meaning. Let's, let's, I think combined, we've been, we've been searching for several years. I, I know in, in unpacking your story and certainly in, in sitting with my own, that meaning has been a, a really important topic to, uh, to delve into. And, you know, one thing I, I wanted to really get into with you today is around well-being for young adults, because that's what you're really primarily up to with Sleep Awake. And I think an interesting place to start I might word vomit a bunch of stuff at you because I'm really fascinated by a lot of the, the through lines in your story and how they connect to what you've created today. And so one thing I heard in your conversation that you did with Andy Cahill on, on the Wonder Dome is that you really, you contended with depression for, I think it was 15 years when you were younger. <laughs> and because of a lot of the work that you have done, you said in that conversation, you're now grateful for your depression. And I would love to hear you kind of walk through what, what you meant when you said that and, and what I think contributed to your depression and, and why that's so rampant in our society for, especially for young folks today. Yeah, that's a big question and a lot to unpack there. And it's a, it's a great place to start because I think out of context, that kind of statement can sound almost like a crass or, you know, not, not honoring the, the suffering that depression is. And, and I lived that suffering for a long time. I think I was probably depressed earlier than 16 or so, but that's when it got diagnosed. And, you know, it was about till 30 until that really started to, to turn around, maybe even early, yeah, early thirties. So the gratitude I have for it now is that I think a large part of our human population lives with a light grade depression, but not enough of a depression to motivate really taking out of the box action to shift it. And the gratitude I have is twofold. It's one that it gave me enough pain that was just incredibly clear motivation. Like life was not going to work the way that it was going with that kind of level of internal monologue and over analysis, rumination, it needed to be addressed. And so instead of living in that kind of cloudy sky, but just dealing with it, it was like very, very stormy and dark and motivated me looking for, you know, in the, in the end, 15, 20 years at all the different modalities that exist. I feel like I've explored probably 20 different healing modalities and mix and match. And I never would have t undertaken that. And so I'm really grateful that I did and that it really opened up a real depth to point to the, the social level that you were alluding to, like a real depth of clarity that actually the way that our society is set up right now and most of our families are so distant from our tribal and deep familial roots and connections that depression and loneliness and anxiety is actually a, a natural intelligent response to how we're living and the level of disconnection where that we're living in. And it's in some sense, I think the people that have, you know, clinical depression that have clinical anxiety, et cetera, are the canaries in the coal mine that are the first ones in society. They're saying, this is actually fucked up. This isn't actually okay. And the, the saddest part about that for me is that we're still oftentimes in a lens of pathologizing 
those things mm. and you have something wrong with you instead of that actually you know Johan Hari says that we we have a malfunctioning lens on it oh you have this chemicals off we need to give you this chemical because you're not functioning instead of actually you should be depressed none of your feelings are understood by your peers you're not feeling deeply connected you're not deeply interdependent you've lost a sense of tribal connection of course you're depressed that's a sign of intelligence that something's not working that something's wrong and so you know, I, I hope there's someone out there that hears that and realizes actually like the, the signal that uh, we use the phrase at camp, beautiful intelligence, like every signal that you have is beautiful and intelligent. And the question is, does it point you to the skillful means to getting that, that challenge solved? Or does it actually, you know, use coping mechanisms that are actually informed by the insanity of our culture? So now I'm word vomiting at you. I don't know which part yeah. of that you want to go down. I'm sitting with it because there's there's much to unpack about what you said. I think one of the things that I, I think is an interesting thing to unpack, this wasn't explicitly said when in, in your response, but I think there's a, a narrative. You, you and I both grew up having, it sounds like, I don't want to make any assumptions. It sounds like you came up from means, like you, you were from, you, you described your upbringing as privileged in one of the conversations I oh, listened to you do. And, and same for me. And I, I always did well in school. I always had friends. I always outwardly, and sounds like you did too, always outwardly uh, could appear as quote unquote normal. Like I, like I could blend in with society. And there was this really deep ache and pain in me that, re that realized I wasn't I wasn't really myself. Like I, I could present a certain way, but that wasn't really all of who I was. I wouldn't have had the language for that, but I can say that now. And as you were describing this kind of grayscale, like I think the, the exact words you used were a lot of people while undiagnosed are walking around with really low grade depression. I'm just wondering if we could unpack that a little bit it, it really resonates with me this, this way that a lot of us are walking around somewhat wounded but not in enough pain to want to change the course of our life or to question society and, and kind of will just keep marching along and so yeah i don't i don't know if there's a question around this as much as i i find this to be a really interesting subject matter to navigate around like the people who are in the most pain what what can we learn from them and like what is contributing to folks not being in that much pain and being in this place where they can function but are you know in some pain and not willing to actually make shifts in their life is is that making sense yeah well there's like eight questions embedded yeah. in that so i can just take <laughs> a step starting starting to hit that and then we'll see where we'll see where that wants to go yeah, where to start? I mean, the place where you started was privilege. And so let me start there by saying there's there's a whole different kind of level of new challenges that come when you come from privilege. Like what's interesting is like a lot a lot of our sense of well-being is the the amount of alignment to our life vision. How clearly am I in coherence to what I envision for my life? And if I grow up on a on a farm and I'm not in the modern world, a modern city. And my life consists of taking care of a farm. And my vision is that I'm going to be taking care of that farm. 
and then I start taking that care of that farm, I may be completely satisfied, completely in love with my life, like fully engaged and fully coherent. And one of the things that often seems to get really thrown on the, on the wayside as we come into modern and postmodern life is actually still catalyzing a vision. We can, we can have grown up often when we are privileged, our, our parents came from a place where their vision was to create means for comfort. And then we grow up in that. And if that were our vision, we'd feel amazing. But since we grow up in that, there isn't a sense of vision with that anymore. And so from, from that kind of modern, postmodern or integral lens, we, we need to actually do the work to actually construct a sense of vision beyond the means, because that's just the default at that point. And where I think this can get so dangerous is the kind of like, the, the guilt around privilege, we can like, well, I should be just happy with what I have, but actually like wherever you are, are new evolutionary challenges, like that doesn't end. And so I know that for me in my teenage years this is why I bring it up. Like in my teenage years, especially I was so upset about the fact that I knew every, I had everything from a sense of privilege and like, why didn't I feel good? And so it all turned inward. It, it like must be me and it must be my mind that's screwed up or something about my being is screwed up. And, and so I really want to like permission in anyone that, that the growth never ends. And, and it's like everybody has their life that has their challenges. And that's so beautiful in a, in a wide lens. It's so beautiful that the growth never ends. And you can't just like get to the survival level and expect that that's going to be satisfying. But if you grow up where survival is actually the challenge, then you, you get the means, then you're going to probably feel really amazing, but we're not all in the same place. We have totally different challenges. So for me, that created constant like background rumination that every night, you know, I'd be like, I, I remember like I was sent to a psychologist when I was 10 years old, cause I was already insomniac overthinking about the day and what everything meant. And yeah, you know, a lot of like grab, a lot of hookiness in the thinking. And so yeah, where else do we want to go with that? Is that is that already something you want to feedback on? I can keep talking. I'm he I'm here for you to keep talking because I I mean I I felt like that was a terrible question and you already gave this amazing insightful <laughs> answer and it's like all right let's I'm still getting warmed up here but Jeff's on fire mm. so let's let him keep mm. going. Well, the thing that comes to mind is Krishnamurti's quote where he said, "It is no measure of sanity to be well adjusted to an insane society," mm. and. We're, as far as, you know, I, I'm not a sociologist or expert in any of this, but the messages that I see are still left over from the last 50 years, which say that if you're depressed, it's you're, you're having a problem. And there's a tide that's beginning to really shift, you know, and I, I see it in like smaller pockets of the psychological world, but that tide really, it's devastatingly create it's a creating a devastating amount of suffering to have that as the narrative to have them the measure of malfunction as the narrative for mental illness right now mental health it, it just adds so much of suffering on top of what's already a horrible amount of suffering and if we actually have the message of wait a second what are what did we lose this is the other irony for me is like most of the things that are missing that would bring us the sense of, of deep satisfaction connection are, are things that we had in our past. They're not missing new things that we need, like the new shiny object. It's actually like, you know, it was very default that you grew up with your parents and grandparents and cousins in the house. 
and like you had that incredibly close in the society and and you as a father of a, a really young baby now like the the social fabric of support if it's just the default understanding that like the whole village is there to support each other you know i have a house in boston and i i only know one neighbor on the street you know, and that's becoming a, a default so much so that when you grow up in that, you normalize that and you forget that you're like 400 miles away from normal. In terms of the human species, 99% of our species was in these villages, you know, 100, people, 100 person kind of villages. And, you know, Gabor Mate wrote this book about the myth of normal. And it's like, this is not normal. Like, let's take a really good look at how unnormal that is and, and depathologize that we actually feel pretty sick and we're getting sick and 90 something percent of the sicknesses are related to stress related to the non-normalcy of the world that we're growing in. So, and none of those statistics are, don't quote me on any of those. That's just uh, roughly the message. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that book, the myth of normal, it's, it's on my table right outside and, that book was coming to mind as, as you were sharing about kind of the way that depression is in a lot of ways, a normal response to a profoundly ill and, and sick society. And so thank you for bringing that into the conversation. And I, I think, you know, one curiosity as we, as we start to zoom in on the threads that are most interesting here, it must've been such a profound moment or moments in your life when you actually were able to make contact with the way that depression for you was pointing you towards a deeper connection with yourself, right? And that you were able to realize, well, I'm not broken and I'm not flawed and I'm not, or, you know, maybe we're, we're all flawed, but you, you know what I mean, that you were, you were in right relationship with your depression at a certain point. And I've had challenges with talk therapy. I've heard many other people voice their challenges with talk therapy that, even if you intellectually understand so many different concepts or, you know, may, maybe ways that you're mistreated in your past or can reconcile, I didn't get this from my parents or, you know, whatever insights you might land on from talk therapy, it's different than making deep contact with what is this depression here to teach me. And I'm wondering when that became evident to you. I, I know this is something that you integrate into your teachings and the curriculum at Sleep Awake. And it's, it's so vital to me that we that we learn and understand the ways that we can you know, make better contact with the parts of us that maybe we historically haven't liked or that we are taught or wrong. So how did you make better contact with your depression? Yeah, thank you for that question. It depends how much we want to back out. I'll back out kind of mid-range back out. Like I remember the first time I went to a, a somatic therapist where the therapy really integrates the body as a foundational part of where this work needs to happen. It's not about, just like you said, it's not about an intellectual understanding. That's important and it's, it's a critical part of things, but actually it usually comes downstream of your body understanding something automatically. You don't necessarily have to understand something first intellectually to actually move through the material. What I find, just to give like a little, a little conceptual lens on it, is that a baby is born and it has the full dynamic range of human experience. You know, I, I'm leaving out epigenetics and things like that. Let's just get, like kind of get a, a roughed in concept. You know, a baby, when it is hungry, it screams. When it is 
too cold or his diapers wet. It just like goes utterly from bliss into total terror because it doesn't even have a conception of time. So there's no idea that someone's going to come in 30 seconds. There's just like everything is off and I'm going to send out a signal and get served. And if we all grew up in unconditionally loving, enlightened societies where this kind of everything was accepted and supported fully, then there'd be no ruptures. There'd be no issues. But in every family, as far as I've ever seen, there are different aspects that are okay to share and express and other aspects that actually hit other others conditioning. And, you know, so there's, there's two, two ways to talk about this that come to mind immediately. There's a guy who's kind of like a spiritual teacher and an addiction specialist named Scott Killaby, who I really enjoy. He has got a lot of videos up on YouTube. I highly recommend seeing it. He does this little 30 second thought experiment that I highly recommend. And I can just like, I can paraphrase it right now, which is close your eyes and picture the people in your family, in your household, you know, mom and dad, brothers, sisters, et cetera, picture them and then choose an emotion that isn't like automatically easeful and fluid for you. You know, for me, it's a lot of work to start to move anger at all. So it's like, imagine myself expressing anger and then let your imagination see what the reaction is from those people in your imagine, you know, in your family, in the image. And it'll get very, very clear why there's a stuckness in that emotion in your own body. Because if everyone in that picture was like, ah, yes, I love you in this place, you would have learned, you know, to let that flow really easily. And so we all grow up with these bins of like, I can't show my fear or I can't show sadness fully, or I can't let my anger out or I can't express a boundary or I have to do certain things in order to get love, you know, uh, all these different aspects of self that get tight and mutated or suffocated. And that's the roots of, of everything as far as I, as far as I've seen. Um, and that's, you know, this is just one person's experience trying to look at the landscape and, and understand it better. So, you know, for me, I had for just for a simple example, I had a, a way older brother. And so like, imagine, you know, I'm, I'm three and he's eight. There's, there's never a good time to get angry at someone with that much of a differential. And so I learned, oh, if I get angry, I'm going to, I'm going to get hurt here. You know, it's not a good idea. And so way before there's any intellectual understanding, conceptual framework for anything, the nervous system actually learns when anger starts to arise, damp it. And literally, if you look at the, the etymology of depression, it, it means that's to push something down, to depress something. So the question can be, well, what's getting depressed? Are you holding in your sadness and your grief about something? Are you holding in your fear? Are you holding in your anger? And, you know, for most of the experience that I understand when I work with people, it's, it's usually all of them to different amounts, you know, but some of us had, you know, if I was sad, for sure, I'm going to be met and that's going to move through with full support. But if I get angry, maybe someone tells me to go to my room until I work that out. And that's actually emotional abuse from a certain lens, but it's, it's everyone's doing the best they can, but they, you know, if a parent's doing that, they probably weren't allowed to be angry and help through their own anger. And so these, these things get passed down and passed down and passed down. So, then you're an adult and then 
all of that is playing out. And we like to think of ourselves as adults, but actually those parts are still in their childhood and in their infancy. And those parts of our, of our consciousness are still whatever age those things were learned. So I remember the first time I ever did a, to bring it all back to the first somatic therapy I ran when I was like 32, 33, I remember going in and working with her and 15 minutes, she was just kind of like, almost like disorienting me enough that I had to get out of my head that I couldn't stay in my head, which is one of my safe places is to go up and in here. And 15 minutes into it, I couldn't remember what single thing she said. I couldn't reflect any of that, but 15 minutes into it, I had a level of sobbing that I hadn't had in 20 years as that was one of the aspects that hadn't felt like it could ever be helped. And just so much and, and almost like no content, but actually feeling safe enough that it could move and someone was there and they were actually receiving it in an unconditionally loving and accepting place and way. And I remember, and anyone that's had major somatic releases um, can attest to this. I remember leaving the session, getting in my car and starting to drive and feeling like the whole road looked different. I could actually, my sensory system was clearer because there was less clouds of repression and depression in the way. And that's like a one-way street. I think any anytime someone actually sees, oh, I had this rule that I constructed 20, 30, 40 years ago, and everything in my nervous system when this thing arises tells me, don't let this through. I need to have actually disconfirming evidence arise. I need to actually have a situation where this thing does move through and it's safe and it's loved and it actually brings me deeper connection. And then my nervous system has gone through the whole activation deactivation pathway and it can start to learn a new way. But if I, if someone tells me like you, you were alluding, if someone says, Oh, you're, you're holding in your anger because it's not safe. Like that's, that's great. But now I'm going to judge myself in a whole new way. I'm not going to feel any better about that. So a lot of it is, is the nervous system building up really intelligent rules that served our survival impeccably early in our life and aren't actually skillful and functional now as we're adults and as we're out of the house, uh, home of origin. Was there, your head is a safe place or was the safe place? I, I don't know if that's still the case. It's still the, the default place that I go. Yeah. If I'm yeah. not feeling safe. Yeah. Did you, did you, was your mind enrolled in somatic therapy at that point? Did you need some sort of scientific data-driven evidence that showed our, you know, studies, double-blind, placebo, et cetera? I, I'm asking for like, if there's a skeptic that is listening to this conversation who needs it's, that sounds cathartic and beautiful. And also like, where's the data? That sounds a little woo woo and new agey. Yeah. <laughs> Did you, was that something that was important to you before that experience happened? I love that you asked that question because a couple of years before that, I had that kind of skepticism toward meditation and meditation is maybe like the most important thing in my life right now. But when I first, you know, I was a physicist and a mathematician at MIT for 10 years. So I was like very steeped in science and skepticism. And my heroes were the greatest skeptics, you know? And I remember in the midst of deep depressive episode, you know, someone talking about meditation and me being like, okay, I'm going to look into this. 
but I'm not going to meditate. I'm going to read neuroscientists talking about meditation. And I read, you know, Buddha's brain is one of the books and papers. And they were like, oh yeah, you get deeper gratitude, deeper compassion, deeper sense of ease. And then I was like, okay, like whatever the, the new age, you know, BS philosophy, there's, a, there's at least a pragmatic underlying thing. And I, and I say that all kind of tongue in cheek, because now I actually, one of my deepest interests now is actually how some of the ontological philosophies of things like Tibetan Buddhism are actually quite profound and a lot deeper than my understanding of quantum physics and, and Western physics. So there's a whole rich conversation to have over there. But I did have that world of skepticism coming in a couple of years earlier with meditation. Now with this one, I had just a mutual friend of that somatic therapist. And after years of meditation, I felt this like deep sense of peace that I could access, but there was no joy in my body. And it's kind of like, well, what's the, what's the purpose of peace if it doesn't come along with a sense of joy? And I, and once again, I really, this is kind of like a place where I'm grateful that I didn't just deal with it and just, okay, I have peace. Let's just call it a day. So I was open as a, like an experimentalist to just go to a session. And so in that phase of my life, I didn't need to do the kind of research agenda. But what I would say is now there's so much research coming out that incorporates the body as a foundational piece of our psychology. Bessel van der Kolk's like classic book at this point, The Body Keeps the Scores, all about trauma and so, you know, hundreds of neuroscience and, uh, and psychological review literature talking about it. And what's, what's really ironic, and this is going to start a total tangent, but basically like there was a one of Freud's contemporaries a hundred and something years ago who was saying all of this, his name is Wilhelm Reich. He was saying the trauma actually lives in the body-mind connection. And it actually, you know, one of the theories is that we, we hold these things by, by contracting our muscles. And that's actually the way that we can numb discomfort or we can repress anger is we have to actually hold it. And then we end up holding things our whole lives. And that's where it leads to things like sickness. Now it's a hundred and something years later and, and all the research is starting to bear that out, that it actually is in the body and the mind. And that's incredibly profound. So there is a wealth of research and I'm no expert on that research, but I'm really excited about the fact that now we're in a phase where that's like, uh, I forget the phrase, like the chickens coming home to roost or whatever. It's like, yeah, we're, yeah. we're finally like getting, it's getting vindication after literally, you know, Wilhelm Reich was like, jailed and his books were burned for writing about this stuff 100, mm. I think 120 years ago. So it's slow and steady, but I, I welcome any skeptic to start with Bessel van der Kolk's work and then, and then start to explore it. And, you know, the, it's, it is a really interesting point you make about, you know, did I need to look that up? Like there are certain experiences that are undeniable and it's not undeniable what the thing was that happened like that's you can deny and have 800 theories about but what's undeniable is that i feel more in alignment and coherence and clarity with myself and if there's anything i'm going to care about that's going to be the prime piece of data not what was my hrv or my eeg all i care about is how am i i feel in my being and so i would i would suggest for any skeptic that that they look at what what are their most important variables in in the equation and yeah it's a it's a that's that's a whole blog a whole podcast episode we could do is just <laughs> talking about the kind of skeptic attitude towards meditation and modern modern psychology mm -hmm, mm -hmm. there continue to be maybe eight different threads that would be really interesting to me and and i think perhaps one of them is that we've 
Well, I have a newborn, as you mentioned. He's he's four and a half months old now. And I think it it's pretty with, without question at this point that the most formative years of our development are the early years. And that's when our, our brain is most open to new ideas. And, and you shared this really powerful story about how I forget exactly what it was. I, th I think that you you said like if you go back, you have two parents and you have four grandparents, and then you go several generations back. You're basically all of you are related in, in so many words. Uh, if you just go back like nine or eleven generations or whatever it is, and there's a group of we'll call it eight year olds, and they all went. They were ecstatic and they all gave each other hugs and they were like, "Oh my God, we're all related." And you told 13-year-olds the same story, and there was just dead silence in the room. And I think that, that is a, that's a depiction of the way that as we get older, we, we have internalized all these stories about what reality is and what reality isn't. And it'd be weird to hug the person next to me. You know, there's, there's an unlimited number of scripts that could be running through anyone's head. And... I know that Sleep Awake works with 18 to 27-year-olds, which I am sure is by design and intentional. And by so, the way, I think it's going to be 18 to 30 this year. Mm, where it, okay. It'll be on the website by the time this is done. Cool. 18 but to 30. I, I love it because when I, I really started doing this work myself when I was in my late 20s. And I think that while my brain has probably had calcified a lot more than a five-year-old's brain, I was still way more open to new ideas than, of course, you know, anyone older. And anyway, the most formative years are the early years, but by design, you have created this container for you know, who will be entering college kids up to young adults. And I would love to hear you talk about the design of Sleep Awake Camp for, for that age group. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, and let's just say, and once again, I'm kind of just hodgepodging some of these things from my limited understanding of, of the latest in, in psychology, but it seems like our our attachment system is pretty much figured out in the first two or three years. And then if you're doing attachment therapy or whatever, you're you're working on that. You might have had other traumas in your life, but like whether you feel securely attached or not is very, very early programming. Hmm. Um, my understanding of like brain waves is that the the first seven or so years of your life, you're you're basically in a semi-state of hypnosis where the the function of your consciousness at the first seven years is to just sponge in the rules of the universe that you're in. And then from seven on is when you start to actually learn to exploit the rules. And so as you're pointing to, these things get crystallized in stages, and then you start to learn how to work with them. And so you can talk to a five-year-old about an utterly paradigm shifting idea and in 30 seconds they will just take it for granted that that's the way the universe works but try doing that with a 50 year old who's like career and ego depend on their understanding of the universe being the way they think it is there's not nearly that kind of sense of malleability in their being so there's in me wanting to work with people there's a couple different forces that all led to this age range and one of them is exactly what you pointed to. The earlier you work with someone, the more malleable their consciousness is. I have no kind of like personal expertise or personal resonance with working with like eight-year-olds or something. But for me, a lot of the initial vision for this camp was like, oh my God, like I was 
in depression at 16 or 17. And by the time I was 20, like with what I know now, if I had a chance to have someone sit me down for a month in an intensive fashion and just like lay out what this thing is, my depression just would have been utterly shifted. And it's not that it wouldn't necessarily gone away in the month, although that happens to campers at times. It's that my understanding would have totally changed the lens of all of it. And the natural way I would have been after that would have, would have healed the depression. I wouldn't have had to go through different therapy. I was put on antidepressants, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. So there's this want for, you know, I, I have a personal resonance with being able to really like serve an earlier version of myself in that way. And that doesn't have the same resonance for me. If it's a six year old is when it's like a, when we work with a 23 year old and I can, we can sit down and just like, have their entire conception of what it is to live a human life can shift in a month. Like, and I'm not even exaggerating, just very deeply utter, utter shifts of like blaming myself for depression to, to having that catalyzed my vision for my life. You know, that's a pretty huge swing. And we have plenty of people who, you know, they, they leave camp, they, they leave abusive relationships. They set new boundaries with their family. They move out of their house or into a different house. They quit their jobs and all these things because they realize that those things were conditioned patterns that are actually keeping them in distress. So, okay, there's a long answer to your question. What I found, I did some work with high schoolers. And what I found is that there's, of course, you know, the same level of difficulty going on. And in fact, those years can be considered the most acute difficulty, you know, high school years for, for a large population. But what I found, and I, I first heard this from an advisor of mine, but it, bore, it, it, it bared itself out as true, is those people in high school, I was doing an intensive, like an emotional intensive with high school students in an experimental high school. Whatever you open about their conditioning and about their family patterns, they go home at the end of the day to the source of that condition. And if I've developed a bunch of defense mechanisms for how to get along in my household, I actually feel like it's probably still pretty intelligent to hold those defense mechanisms in place. If you start to open that up and try to rewrite all the social contracts in your family and you don't have an incredible level of community support, you're probably going to just create a level of distress that actually augments the, the challenges of living at home. And so one of the kind of rules of thumb that we, we generally follow, we make exceptions, is that we generally prefer to work with people that have already left the house. Then they have their own kind of stable social life going, and it's not as dependent on their relationship with their parents. And so, you know, much of our conditioning is related to our parents and grandparents and ancestry. And so it feels a lot more responsible to open that Pandora's box once someone is out of the home. So that puts the kind of pressure into don't do it too early. You know, so there's this kind of don't do it too late, don't do it too early. And then there's also this flexibility in college and grad school aged young adult populations, which is that it's actually possible to take more than two weeks off at a time. You haven't already had a big family. You haven't already gotten a job where you're just taking a week off at a time, et cetera. There's a more malleability also in scheduling typically. And so by working with this population, it hits this like Goldilocks zone of a bunch of different factors. And, and you're oftentimes going to a different place for school, meeting all new people. So as you let go of your prior contracts for how you would be with people, it's sometimes easier to meet new people that don't know anything about how you used to be. 
to just engage those new contracts. So those are the kind of four main forces, as I see them, that, that push us into wanting to work and focus on that range of 18 to 30. And the first year it was 18 to 24. Mm-hmm. We found that there was so much resonance in the 22 to 24 year olds. And when we did like weekend workshops during the year, there were people that asked that could come if, if they were older. And we actually found out like the second year that 24 year was the mean and every year we have people right on the upper edge that are like, you know, please let me in, please let me in. And, and what we find actually is like a lot of them are in exactly the same kind of phase arc as the 27 year old that we're letting in. And so it's like, that's what I want to serve is, is that phase. You know, it, there's, there's probably 22 year olds that aren't in this phase and 29 year olds that are. And so we're trying to like widen it experimentally to feel, but after a certain width, then it gets a little diluted too. You know, if we suddenly had some 50 year olds in there, there wouldn't be the level of cohesion of people going through the same experience. So there's a lot of factors and, and, and I don't, one of the things I love about the way that we run the business is, is that it's an experiment, you know? And for me, every year, I try to come to camp with a very specific core question that this year's camp is helping gather data for to inform the next year. And so like, for example, the first year it was just like, can we create a permanent shift in someone's well-being? Because if we can't, there's no other questions to be working on, you know? And so then we did a whole data study that we still continue today. That's like checked long-term outcomes. And once that was found to be clear, then we could start asking more detailed questions. Mm-hmm. So a reflection I have, and then we'll, we'll see where, where it turns into a question is, is when I reflect back on where I was at the, the various stages, I'm 33 years old now. So 30 is certainly not very far removed. I actually got married when I was 30 and 18, you know, I, I think I would have probably benefited the most from sleep awake when I was 18, because I was there's just there's a lack of right rites of passage in in our culture. I mean, that's one of the many things that's missing in our culture, especially for men. And you know, one of the ways that I replaced that when I was 18 and went to college, it wasn't that I started in college. I probably started drinking a little bit before that, but I was really numbing a lot in college, especially as I got into the later, you know, 19, 20, 21. Uh, because I was more and more confronted with, uh, I'm going to enter the quote unquote real world. And that was this really scary proposition for me. And so what I, what I love about you expanding the age range is that 18 on paper makes probably the most sense, but uh, there's some, there seems to be something in our collective consciousness where maybe we, we can sense it a little bit, but we're not quite ready to make, make that leap or to do a month of intensive work that I think when I was 25, I would have been super, I would have been clamoring for this type of thing in a big way. So it's like, it's all brewing in there uh, on the earlier side of things for sure. But it's something about that age range or even later twenties where we're having, you know, a lot of people call it a quarter life crisis now where we're, we're starting to realize to, to kind of circle back to one of the things you were talking about before is that, this prescribed vision or maybe our parents' vision that has just been handed down to us about being of means and continuing to make money and then continuing to live in a nice house, it's, that's not in coherence with who we are and what our actual vision is. And 
it just it resonates with me that you have made this this age range what it is now that I think a lot of us at even beyond 30 a little bit are at this stage in our life where we're, we're starting to develop our own sense of self or to use adult development language like we're, we're kind of we're we're starting to push the boundaries of our socialized minds and kind of what's what's been given to us from society and our parents and starting to make contact with who who we want to be and who we are so anyway that's that's the reflection question a question that i have there, there's a there's a few curiosities but i think one of them is so I, I've heard you speak to the way that I guess one one of the challenges in our society or something that especially as we enter the work world or even in our education system or or with parents, like there's so many different ways that this happens where there's the rule setter or kind of the, the keeper of what's supposed to happen, and then there's the rule follower and, and someone who obeys. And one of the things I love about what you're doing at camp is that there's at least the intention from what my understanding is, is that there isn't hierarchy, right? That you're, you're actually, you as the creator, the co-creator of this experience are showing up and, and doing your own work alongside the, the, the attendees of this experience. And it's something that resonates with me. And, and it's something that I think it's a tough dance to do because it, to a certain extent, from my vantage point, having hierarchy can be helpful to accept to the extent that it's like, I'm above you and I've ascended to this level and you need to do this thing to get to my level. So I'm just, I'm wondering how you build in the kind of like, yes, there's established, there's a yoga teacher and there's a chef and there's the, you know, the person who's in, in charge of the teaching creativity and nervous system regulation and all that stuff. But you're also kind of walking the path with them, and, and so how do you look at that dance? Yeah, it's a great question. It's a very subtle thing, and there's there's some subtleties that if if we don't explore them, will could be interpreted as extremely irresponsible. So I want to I want to say say those things first. Like we set the container with very clear rules and conditions. You know, there's there's no physical violence allowed. There's no sending anger at someone unless you get very explicit permission and a set of ways to contain that. Um, you know, there's no staff uh, sexual relationships with campers, et cetera. Like the, we are very much in the authority of creating the container to create a sense of safety. Uh, and that enables us to have a lot of malleability within that container for what growth happens. And one of the things that we're constantly pointing people, you mentioned rites of passage, there's a lot to say there because that is what this camp is in some foundational sense. Um, you know, Bill Plotkin, if I'm remembering how he spoke about it, he's, he's really like one of the, the great researchers on coming of age rites of passage across traditions, uh, across cultures. And, and by his lens, most of the people in the modern world don't ever finish late adolescence. They don't actually get into what in other places in the world is, is adulthood, early adulthood, because they're actually still so dependent on other senses of authority. So one of the themes we try to come back to over and over through the month is, is actually staging in a deeper and deeper sense of self-authority, because that's usually, as you pointed to, one of the things that's most disavowed in, in people, and myself included. I didn't start learning anything about that until a couple of years ago. Um, and it's just another place where this myth of normal lets us think that there always will be another authority. 
but that actually keeps us in in a sense in 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 late adolescence. So I'm I'm remembering this. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll share this. Like it's a it's an anecdotal story about this that make, makes a lot of sense. You know, we we do a lot of work to make sure the first couple of weeks are just incredibly clear that the container can hold anything that's going to come up like you know and so in that sense we tend to leave more of our process our personal evolutionary process out of the main discussion until until everyone can really feel clearly that everything is held and then we might share more and more about like hey we're all growing human beings we all have an evolutionary process and that doesn't end and that's beautiful itself and so we're going to start sharing our human process as well once once there's that sense of safety and i think there's a way that if we had done that on the first day that would actually create a sense of unsafety. And so it's very important that we, we first show that actually everything is held. Um, so that's our current iteration. But I'm, I'm having this memory the first year, you know, we do this uh, a process called open circle quite regularly where it's just the, the whole group and anyone can sit in the front chair and say like, here's something I need to share with the group or I need to process something with the group, you know? And this woman um, came up and it's going to, this is going to seem roundabout at first because it doesn't start kind of to the core of your question, but it lands there. This, this woman came up and she said, I want to know who's judging me because I'm the youngest camper. here." Mm. And everyone was kind of perplexed because actually no one knew she was really the youngest camper because, you know, but to her, this was like a big potential thing. And so everyone was like, no, no, what's going on? And she was like, just getting so relieved by asking this question and getting uh, evidence to the contrary. And then one person said, we're judging you because you steal all the snacks. <laughs> and what commenced from there was a 45 minute conversation about how everyone was resenting this person because she was hoarding snacks and we had a limited amount of, you know, chips and stuff. And so she's getting, you know, judged and she's getting defensive and there's a whole argument, you know, and, and, something like 45 minutes into this, as people start to kind of settle and like everyone's expressed and everyone's like settling into the reality. I, I don't remember how I phrased it, but I asked something like, what made it so that none of you ever asked us for more snacks? Hmm. And it was this like, to, to me, very obvious from the, watching this, this weird, you know, microcosm happen. But all of a sudden it was like this implicit, rule that everyone had created that they aren't the authority and so the way the environment is is just the way it is and now we have to fight for snacks was implicit in everyone's judgment and resentment and never conscious enough to actually realize that they have empowerment and self-authority and had any of them just said could we get double the snacks like we would have just had that and so we, everyone was laughing it was just this like very easy flip. I wish all processes were that easy because it was just like everyone laughed and kind of saw through the ways that we, I always use the word laminate. We laminate our conditioning and our distortions right on the world. And it's this window that seems clean. It's not clean. It's a circus mirror. It distorts everything. Uh, and I'm not free of it by any means. We all have these distorting lenses, but that's the kind of pointer that we're trying to stage in more and more and more as time goes on. Like you can easily go to our camp for a month and have nothing happen for you because you don't actually take authority and take the self motivation and make yourself participate in things because resistance is going to come up. And if you just want to kind of like ignore it and, you know, deny it, uh, you're not going to go through the, the growth. 
So I, I probably say it like 10 times through the month, you know, like, how are you disowning your authority right now? Like, how are you disowning your authority? Some, something along those lines. And, and people will call me. I, I just had a call with someone like a week ago, you know, it's five months after camp. And they're like, hey, I was disowning my authority this entire time based on this thing. And I didn't notice until this week that this was happening. And that's how deep the circuits run in our bodies around authority. And that's just one facet of adulthood, you know, self-authorship. So it's really, really huge. And if, if we want to, I, I'm, I, also, I can share a story about Rise of Passage if we want to go down that road. Please do. So like I was my mom's 65th birthday. We all went on safari in Africa, me and my brother and my parents. And, and we got to actually meet the, a Maasai village, you know, local nomadic Maasai warriors is I think the right word. And we went into this like dung hut, which was the chief's hut. And we sat with some of the men in the village and there was like eight of us on this tour. And the chief described to us the rite of passage that, they, that every man goes through. And it was as follows. When you turn 15, they exile you from the village for a year. And you have to go on the plains of Africa and you have to live totally by yourself. You have to mm -hmm. take care of yourself. You have to build your weapons. You have to kill your food. Alone, alone. For a year. Let's be really clear. Like get it in you know, a year. As a 15-year-old. And then at the end of the year, you have to hunt and kill a lion. And you have to decapitate it and bring its head back to prove that you're a man. Hmm. And, of course, like, let's, like, leave. There's a whole animal rights thing. And this is all changing in modern times. So let's, like, leave that part aside for now. I had to read, a, like, a Torah portion for 20 minutes in front of, you know, 100 people. And then I was declared as a man. Like, it's exactly what you pointed to before. I had this intellectual something telling me I'm a man now because some people said so. And none of my body was incorporated into that process. There was no actual rite of passage into manhood, which almost always very intimately involves facing death face to face and actually moving through the gauntlet of the ignorance and denial of death into the reality of death. And that is a critical component of many, many rites of passage that lets you actually step into manhood. And I heard this guy say this thing and I, I like, I must've almost fallen out of my chair because then I, then we left the hut and uh, it makes me want to cry. We, we walked through the village and he said, every man that you're seeing has been through this process. And I start to think to myself, like, what the fuck world would we live in if every man I grew up with had been through this process? Mm -hmm. What kind of level of sacredness for life and gratitude for life and gratitude for togetherness and connection and ability to face challenge without shrinking from it and openness to the actual realities of life and death? Just like this is just almost utterly decimated from our culture right now. And this is another part that we just consider normal. Oh, well, you got your high school degree. You're a man now. You're a woman now. Like, we're, we're millions of miles away from normal, and we're trying to actually, like, you know, move 100 feet in either direction, thinking that's going to solve the problem. That's how it feels to me a lot of the time when I, when I let the frustration that, that fuels a lot of this work really come to the surface. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the aforementioned 
really ancient technologies that has almost evaporated from our society, right? That a, a lot of the changes that we're hungriest for as a culture right now aren't uh, the the newest innovation that's necessary. It's really just reconnecting. That that's why a lot of people are are studying kind of tribal roots and our and our ancestry is that. Yes, we've made so much progress in the medical field and people are living a longer time and the, so, so many wonderful things have happened and, and we've solved for food scarcity, right? There's just like so many incredible advancements and there's this real appetite for connecting with what was really great about our ancestry and communities and tribes and villages and, and all that stuff. And, uh, you know, it, it seems like, well, this is this is where I wanted to go next with you is you know, you're not in, in sleep awake. You're not, unless we've got a, a surprise reveal on, on Mike's search for meaning here, right? The, the campers aren't, you know, going for any extended period of time alone and, and fending for themselves and hunting for their own food and, and all that. But in a lot of ways, you, you are helping build the foundation for things that have never been taught to us for, for, I mean, maybe they have to some extent, but the building blocks of what it means to be a human are mostly not taught to us unless we're really lucky and we're taught them in our household or somewhere besides school or, you know, wherever else we spend our time. It's not, it's not inherent. It's actually the, it's the opposite of the normal, right? It's like, it's really the outlier to be someone who's in tune with their emotions, in tune with their body, connected to nature, et cetera. How do you build this into, I, I know a little bit about the curriculum of the month that's spent at Sleep Awake, but if you could walk through just, you know, what, what, is, what does the month look like when someone is enrolled at Sleep Awake? Yeah, so it's a great, easy, easy thing to answer because it's what I think about all the time, obviously. You have a month to hopefully as deeply as possible shift the course of someone's life. What, what do you do with that month? You know, you have 20 weekdays and it's like, how do you shove all the things that a human being knows or, or you know, should know or, or could know into 20 weekdays? It's, it's quite an amazing puzzle. And for someone like me, who's like really loves thinking about structures and patterns, it's like one of the most interesting puzzles uh, that I could imagine. And, you know, I started talking a little bit about the kind of curriculum just in terms of the emotional aspects of it, you know, how this would have been a set of things that if I were exposed to in the midst of early depression would have like course corrected my life. But, but I appreciate the question because it lets, it lets us back out and take a 30,000 foot view. There's so many dimensions of a human being's life that are almost entirely ignored in our educational system. And many of our families and communities have detuned, uh, you know, lost the attunement to them that, that we're not getting them from anywhere. And so that forms the dimensions of the curriculum. And so I, I can kind of rifle some of them off. You know, one of them is a sense of metacognitive awareness, like an, an, an ability to start to turn the lens in and just actually look at one's self, because that's the foundation for a lot of what we look at in detail. One aspect of that is attention and awareness training, you know, meditation-based concentration and awareness training. If you can't sustain your attention on anything, you can't really go too in-depth of learning about it or actually understanding, you know, getting insight into it. So there's attention and awareness training. One of the main things that stops us from being able to stabilize our attention on things is our nervous system being dysregulated. You know, we see ADHD and ADD and all, all manner of ways that we're not settling. And there are direct and 
you could call them indirect, but the kind of different levels of causality. You know, we can do direct work on nervous system regulation. We can learn the basics of sensing the, the systems of the body, like what it feels like to be grounded and actually how to get yourself more grounded, what it, what it means to get dissociated and actually have a deeper understanding of the, the energetic movement of the body. We get into the backbone of the whole program is emotional and relational work. Where are all these emotions coming from? What do they mean? How do they inform us, our actions? How do our past experiences actually distort our, our you know, interactions with people? How do things like projections come into play there? But very much in an experiential sense. We're not using textbooks. We're not trying to like take a lot of notes. We're going to go through experiences that let you understand directly how you're making distortions in reality. As we get more familiar with our own sense of emotion and sensation, then we can get more into relationship. And that's where things like projections come in. Learning boundaries, for example, something that when I was growing up wasn't even a word that people used. And now it's like TikTokers are talking about boundaries all the time. So it's in the climate. But, but do you know what it feels like to stand next to someone that's close to you and say something that has consequence like a boundary? and actually do it from a loving place that actually serves the connection. Like all these kind of things that are very, very critical to the emotional relational space. So I would say that is the backbone and all the things like attentional training, awareness training, nervous system regulation, they all kind of function in there. And we do a lot of work around patterning and conditioning and how, how we've learned that certain aspects of ourselves are okay and certain aren't. And we do a lot of work to like play with that. There's a lot of play. There's a lot of, you know, I, I'm really interested in um a lot of the curriculums, games that I've invented that are basically like, you could do this in an incredibly serious context, but it's, it's already going to be bringing up resistance. So we might as well have fun with it and laugh at the same time. So a lot of the stuff is games that lets us like do this while we're laughing. All that's amazing, but it doesn't actually encompass everything. It misses out on major, major aspects. For example, how do I create a sense of vision for myself? How do I tap into my unique dimension of creative expression that is only here in my own body and is not subject to other people? In a related sense, how do I tap into what I actually really want? Because a lot of us, when we're used to, you know, I'll speak for myself, when we're used to tracking other people and what they need and want, we detune our own needs and wants. And our society kind of does this in a huge way. So learning actually what it feels like to really want something and how to tap into that and how beautiful it is to want something and how that kind of like creative energy can really create a different sense of joy. And then we have other aspects like cooking, like how do you actually cook for yourself? Something I didn't know until my thirties and it was a huge damper on my sense of self-authorship and self-independence. And all of that forms the rainbow of the curriculum that we focus on at camp. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'll add, yeah, I've heard you speak to hydration too. And I, I really, I, I appreciate that nutrition and, and hydration. There you go. And I, yes, I've got, I've got my water with me as, as well. And you know, that that's something that in, I mean, maybe this is just my, my blinders are on, but in, in kind of the spaces of transformation, that there's a lot of beautiful emphasis. I want to, I want to underscore that it's so important and it is in a lot of ways, the backbone to understand kind of our, our nervous system and, and the, the inner makings of a human being. And the, I think without, in the absence of the really practical, what are we eating? Are we hydrating? Are we sleeping, et cetera? You know, that was something we were talking about 
before we jumped on here, just how important sleep is to, to each of us. And I would assert that's probably true for every human, right? It's a sleep deprivation is a form of torture that if we're missing out on those, it's, you know, it, it doesn't allow for the full integration to the happening in quite the same way. And I just, I, I love what you guys are, what you've created and are continuing to create at Sleep Awake. Thank it you. sounds like totally immersive and it's something that you created for, it sounds like really the, the 16 year olds or, you know, whatever the age is in you. And there's, I, I can, I can feel into just how beautiful that would have been for me at, at those, any age on that spectrum to be an attendee there. And, you know, boundaries is, I, I wanted to walk through that. There's a couple of things that I want to continue to press on a little bit. And one of them is boundaries, because this is something that even someone like myself, who has done a decent amount of inner work at this point, and in, in a lot of ways, I, you know, I've just gotten sneakier at playing the same game that I've played my whole life, which sometimes is to avoid the hard conversation. And I, you know, I can kind of tie myself into knots with ways that I might avoid having hard conversations. And so I'm wondering if there's a, a moment in your life or an experience that you'd be willing to share from camp of someone lovingly stating a boundary that they have. First, let me just empathize. Let me just empathize with the, the, the level of honesty you're sharing. Like boundaries is, you know, as someone who had, a, had and still has a lot of default movement towards repression of anger, which is always connected to a boundary or a no, these are still really challenging. This is one of the reasons I want to do the work with a 23-year-old and not learn what a boundary is when I'm 39 and then have to start to actually work with my nervous system there. It's just harder those tracks are well-worn. So for me, those are still tricky. Those are still areas where when it comes up, my nervous system still expects that there's going to be a catastrophe. And I have to see that and be like, oh yeah, okay, wow. Like part of my brain is dissociating now because it doesn't want to feel the intensity of what's going on. But what I can really clearly say is I used to have, I remember one relationship I had that was two years long and we never had a single conflict, like I never had a single fight. But every time something came up that wasn't actually okay with me, instead of stating it and actually leaning into it, I internally stepped further away from the person. And so two years into it, it ends and I'm like not, I hadn't even been in the relationship for six months. You know, I hadn't even noticed. And so that's the kind of consequence of, of not doing this work. And, and I just want to own how you, how you were owning that energy. It's like, hmm. We, anyone that has a trouble with boundaries, it was not modeled in a way where boundaries are a loving way to deepen connection with somebody. And what I'd say is that that's the, that's one of the deepest parts that I think kind of open me up to boundaries and, and opens up campers when they see actually two things. One of them is that they, the boundary should deepen connection. Even if the boundary is, I can't be in relationship with you right now because it's actually activating too much of my own conditioning. As soon as I say that to someone, I should feel more unconditionally loving of that person and more clearly able to accept them exactly as they are. Whereas if I didn't place that boundary, I'll have more resentment. I'll have more wishing they were different and blaming them for not already being different or not mind reading me or whatever. And <laughs> As soon as I state the thing, I should actually be able to see them as they are and have compassion for any challenges that they're having. The other one, and this is a whole, I 
you know, pretty you know deep rabbit hole we could go in, but the the deep boundary setting is always a boundary on yourself. It's not ever actually a boundary on how how the other person needs to act. Because, and the way I phrase it in, in camp is, if your freedom depends on anyone else, you're fucked. Mm -hmm. Because people are not going to just listen to the way that you want life to be. They're going to all, 8 billion of them are going to do what they're going to do. And so the boundary setting is always, if such and such happens, I'm going to do this to take care of myself. And not, don't do this thing. Because that's, that's this kind of like, now I'm in repression, uh, you know, resentment and blame. And I catch myself with this all the time, you know, like the wishing that someone in my life were different. And it's, it's actually just a leftover piece of adolescence that wishes the, the world were fantastical like that. So this is still, still an area where, you know, I'm, I'm undoing those grooves after a long time. Where we see this in camp, I mean, we see this, I don't want to give away too many secret so let me let me think about how to say you know what we try to do is we try to oh i'm really like don't want to say certain things because I, I want anyone that comes to camp to not know uh, you know certain parts of the program but how i will say it is we we see a lot of campers shift their relationship with their family and have really hard conversations about aspects of their relationship with their family that haven't been working for them. And what I think is so beautiful, maybe the most beautiful thing I can say about it is I remember one of the, the campers talking to their father. I'm trying to make sure I can keep this all confidential. Yeah. Talking to their father and, and really asking for something to change in their relationship and the father saying no and saying that he couldn't actually meet that. And she just, you know, obviously incredible amount of grief and because she had wanted this thing for a long time, but had never actually had the courage and tools to ask for it. And I remember her grieving so deeply and then being so thankful that she had that conversation mm. and that she actually knew what was real in her life now, that she did, wasn't living with one foot in a fantasy land, that she was actually living in the way things are which is often the, the way that the movement of people as they go through camp and, and beyond really come into. It's like, I, I tell people over and over and over again, we all do like, this is not going to lead to just an easeful automatically, like uh, skipping kind of life. This leads to a life where you have more and more consequences in your life because you're actually willing to make consequences in your life. And that's not always a very, very happy thing. It's actually, but it's more and more meaningful and more and more aligned and coherent with oneself. But that's one of the biggest things we see all the time is, you know, since so much of the coming of age is about the relationship with the parents, we do a lot of work implicitly and explicitly with that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I was also wondering, I know we've got about 30 minutes of time left here. And, mm -hmm. and so I want to, I want to be mindful of just how much I want to cover and to, it might be over ambitious, but there's, there's two things that are coming up for me and, and we'll see where, where you can take them. One is a lot of cathartic experiences 
they can create the, they can open the channel, if you will, right? Like they, they create new possibility for us. And then we, if, if we're, if we don't have the tools about how do we integrate this into our daily life, the over time, it'll slowly erode. And, and I see this in, in, in many different ways, right? This is why whatever the number is, 95% of diets end up just, you, you might lose weight and then you end up reverting back to what was already there, right? Because the, the behavior at its root actually hasn't shifted and been integrated deeply enough that it's making sustainable change into our life. And so uh, one, one part of me wants to just jump right into that and go into how do you build integration or maybe daily practices? Like what, what, is that, what does that process look like for, for the attendees in the camp? And I also, I think that might be the more important question because I, I've addressed this in many other conversations before around the intelligence of emotions, but I think it could be really important to paint the, the color of what, what are the intelligences of different emotions. I mean, that, it, that was like groundbreaking, earth shattering for me to learn that there's an intelligence to my anger, there's an intelligence to my depression, despair, fill in the blank emotion, right? And so like painting a, a, at least a light picture of like, what are the intelligences of emotions is another curiosity of mine. So I know that's a lot. I can, I can kind of nudge you one way or the other, depending on where you start. But those are, those are two things I definitely wanted to talk about. Yeah. I'll, I'll just answer them both in a semi-short way, and then we can just decide where that wants to take us. Perfect. I also have seen, I've seen a lot of people do deeply cathartic work, and then a year later, not feel like anything has really deeply shifted. And so I always, you know, I have that lens as one part where integration is the only thing I'm interested in. And, and what I know is that it's easy, especially as a facilitator, to want to delude ourselves into that we did great work and pat ourselves on the back because of the level of catharsis someone has. And that becomes proof of my worth as a facilitator. And that's really dangerous for confirmation bias. And that's one of the reasons we do a data study that's, you know, before camp, after camp, and then four months after camp to actually see like what is actually stuck. And so right after camp, you can see that cathartic explosion. And then, and then the real question is, you know, do things settle like this? And some of them do, and some of them actually go this way, where you can see that they have new tools and new learnings that keep building on themselves over time. And so we do that data study in part because we don't want to dilute ourselves. We actually want to be of benefit to the rest of the person's life. So one of the things that we do is this one-month program has a nine-month integration follow-up where we do calls that are weekly calls, then bi-weekly calls, then excuse me, monthly calls. So there's this kind of like falling off of making sure that there's a sense of communal support for what comes up. Because you take these tools from a, a, you know, a retreat environment and then the rubber hits the road when you actually try it with mom and dad or you try it with a romantic partner. And those are, you know, the, the metaphor that always comes to mind is like, those are the video game bosses you know, those are the final boss. When you try, when you try to have a boundary conversation with dad or something, then you're going to find out how enlightened you are, you know, <laughs> and how much you can deal with reality. So we have calls, a lot of the content of calls, we've experimented with, you know, teaching things. And what we have found so far is the most useful thing is to actually just check in with people about the challenges and like review, like, 
what worked, what didn't work, and actually do some inquiry around that. Ah, oh, where did I lose myself here? Where did I stop being truthful to myself? Or how was I letting such and such conditioning get in the way? And can I can I actually do some internal processing to clear that and then come back to that relationship? So there's a lot of iterations of of check-in and, and kind of reminding people's bodies of the cultural climate of actually being steeped in a place where actually everything you feel is intelligent and good. So that's, and we actually are, now we're about to start a grad program for the first time. We're in parallel with that. We, we te teach deeper work and deep, deeper kind of co-coaching models where people get to really run the reps of helping each other process through challenges and uh, not in any formal like clinical or psychological context, but actually just being of, of deep mutual support to one another and, and feeling the, the universality of what, it, what I'm going through that I might've thought is just me and actually feeling like we're all going through this learning curve. So that's, that's the integration side. The side about the beautiful intelligence, there's a little bit, I'll speak a little bit about it, and then there's this little tension there because I think one of the tensions, and I've seen this in anyone that, you know, Tibetan Buddhism talks about this in different terms, the, the kind of Buddha nature inside emotions and the wisdoms that are inside all of these difficult emotions. And what I've seen those teachers do, and I tend to lean toward myself, is I don't want to overly define what those intelligences are, because then the mind latches onto that instead of actually developing the sense of trust that if I feel this thing without resisting it, what is it pointing me towards? Oh, it's not because Jeff said it's this thing. It's actually because I'm, I feel it. I actually trust it. And so now it's fear or anger or jealousy or whatever. It's actually, I can start to feel the intelligence and learn the pathway to the intelligence. And so I, I'm glad to actually use a, a very, very kind of extreme example. The first year when I was, when I was teaching this idea of beautiful intelligence, I, I usually have people just propose certain feelings they've had that don't feel intelligent. And that, that seemed to bring out the most resistance. And, and just a, as a pointer, I'd say the, the intelligence is there when there's no resistance to the feeling. That's when the intelligence seems to be the clearest. And we have so much conditioning around resistance to the feelings that we don't get to see through. So I, I was offering this question and, and just trigger warning, because I'm going to talk about suicidality. The, the camper said, I want to, I have feelings of wanting to kill myself. How is that intelligent? And I said, what is the, what is that? What would that get you? What do you want that committing suicide would get you? And it makes me want to cry remembering this. She said, she said, I wouldn't be in pain anymore. And I said, tell everyone in the circle right now, I don't want to be in pain anymore. And she said, I don't want to be in pain anymore. And she just, she bawled. And she just, you know, really felt the grief of that. And she could see the intelligence of that. What an intelligent thing to want to be out of pain. What an amazing intelligent signal to say, this is not how I want to feel. Now, the question is, how do I tap into that intelligence with skillful means? Suicide's one way to get out of pain, but it's not necessarily a skillful way to get out of pain when there are other mechanisms to get through and beyond that pain. And so once she could feel that that's actually the thing that's underlying this and my family, community, environment, et cetera, hasn't shown me these other pathways, then the challenge is how do I take this intelligence and move it through a skillful pathway? 
that's the life's work. And I don't know how that ends. The life's work is, oh, anger comes up inside me and actually I need to say no to something. And that's one I'll, I'll easily talk about because it's, it's kind of the easiest to feel into. Like there's actually a clear no or a sense of clarity or like I need to do this. And that's where the anger comes from. And it's beautifully intelligent. And I don't think you'd ever see, for example, the work of Gandhi happen if he wasn't tapping into the intelligence that actually something's not okay here. But he could have actually been one of the people that was resisting it and just being like, what the fuck are you guys doing? You know, and he wouldn't have been skillful at all and nothing would have changed. He would have probably just been ignored. But actually he knew how to deeply channel the intelligence of that into action, skillful action. And he catalyzed the, the coherence of an entire nation through channeling the intelligence of that anger. So I still have yet to, to find a counterexample to it. It's quite an amazing puzzle. And I, and I suggest to anyone that feels like they have a counterexample, some of them are a little trickier, but usually pretty quickly you could say like, well, what would that, what would that get you? What does that feeling want? And if you can tap into that, it's good. It's beautiful. It almost always points to one of two things. I want to be safe and I want to be connected. And how beautiful is that? That the human body and sensate system has natural compasses towards getting safe and getting connected. And it's like when those feelings are seen in that way, there's a very different lens on pathology. You know, and when I see my depression as actually it was really, really skillful to hold this stuff in. And now it's not. I can see the intelligence of what I was doing the whole time. And I can see the work that needs to happen to actually like un unclog the pipes, so to speak. Well, Jeff, as, as we move to the back end here, the last 20 minutes or so, is there, is there anything that we haven't discussed or that you want to unpack a little bit more deeply from, from the conversation thus far? And if not, I have just a, a few more things for you. Right now, yeah, nothing floats to the top as uh, I, I'm first, let me just say, I really appreciate, I can hear, you know, your ability to not only have listened to other podcasts that I've done and like incorporate that work, but also like, as I speak, you're connecting internal dots with other parts that you've wanted to speak about and reflecting that. So I really appreciate that because it's, it's deeply engaging for me to know that we're both on a exploration together. And it's not a, it's not like you have seven questions and I'm just going to wrote answer those questions and we're going to finish. So given that I'm just interested in, in what has come up and what you're interested to spend the last 20 minutes on yourself. Mm -hmm. Well, that, I appreciate that reflection. It, it means a lot to me. And yes, I, I do my best to both come prepared and, and be present and available to, you know, whatever emerges in the conversation. So I received that acknowledgement. Thank you. I, uh, on, on the back end, I, I typically like to just ask more of the, they're, they're open-ended. They don't need to connect to anything we've spoken about so far. And I, I always love knowing with, with practitioners like yourself and deep students of self and of the human experience, what are you in the practice of right now? Or what are you most deeply practicing? Yeah. The two things that I'm most practicing are really bringing these tools to romantic partnership because I've done a lot of this work in when I learned all this kind of stuff through retreats and workshops and long-term programs, it wasn't that insulated environment. 
and it was pretty easy to bring those things into like friendships and per parental relationships and stuff. But for me, especially with the level of historical conflict avoidance that I had learned, bringing these tools into romantic partnership has been like a crucible for an incredible amount of growth. It's really where the rubber hits the road. You know, can you, can you see all the conditioning come up in the moment when you're with your partner and, and actually stand in the face of it? And so that I consider that a healing and spiritual practice to be in conscious relationship where both partners know that we're going to have conditioning know that it's going to arise, start to learn about each other's conditioning patterns and learn how to be more skillful with each other in those patterns. And, you know, one of those patterns for me is just like the denial of my own tracking of my wants, you know, like losing myself in order to track another person. And so it's not even necessarily someone's doing something. It's just, you bring these aspects of self to a relationship. So that's an amazing growth factor. For me, that's that's high on the priority list and really dedicating a lot of time to working with my partner and learning more about how to do that and how to be with myself and, and the really young parts that come up when they don't feel met and that how my conditioning informs that, etc. So that is a really deep practice. I can only imagine how much that gets magnified when you have a child <laughs> like you just entered the crucible of. So that and meditation are by far the two most important practices for me. I've been studying in a Tibetan Buddhist path for the last two to three years. And their lens, as far as the different traditions that I've seen, their lens on what is going on with spirituality, what the nature of spirit is, and, and how to actually understand the nature of mind more directly is, is just incredibly potent and deep. And as my my first teacher in the tradition, his name is Dan Brown, and he was a meditation master, but also a child psychologist and attachment specialist. And he would always say, the spiritual path has profound implications, <laughs> profound implications on mental health and our understanding of actually what's possible in mental health. The range of well-being is not actually this, it's actually this. And we don't even have that on, on our psychology maps. Most people don't have that, I should say, on, on our map of psychology. We see this little range and we don't, we don't understand the reaches of, of what's possible in the mind. And, and what I see as far as my limited exposure to the, the world's spiritual traditions, the Tibetan Buddhists have, have just gone so incredibly deep into the nature of the mind and the nature of perception and cognition and sitting, you know, even if it's just whatever it is, but having any regular practice and dwelling in the nature of mind and stabilizing an understanding of the nature of mind has been kind of the underpinning of everything else. I don't think I'd be able to sustain running camp or putting projects like that together without having a practice that informs that. And, and the other thing I, I do want to say is a, a little tangential, but it's, it's a core approach and, and kind of philosophy at camp. If, if someone is, you know, I look at these two lenses of growth, uh, you know, spiritual growth and psychological healing and growth. And if I just have the psychological growth, what can often happen is that I can be on an infinite quest that I feel never ends. And I'm actually always incomplete 
And I healed these nine things, but all it showed me is that there's 30 other things that I should heal. And I can build a belief system that act, that kind of pathologizes that and puts me on a, a hamster wheel and a, a hamster wheel of incompleteness. Now, one of the core things about the spiritual path is actually getting in touch with the part of you that's already perfect and already whole and never changes, never will change and couldn't change. And what a place of refuge to find that. If that's incorporated with healing psychologically, then you already are in touch with the perfect wholeness while engaging in continued evolution and growth. And that's beautiful. But if I, what happens to a lot of people on the spiritual path, myself included, you know, 10, 10 or so years ago, getting in touch with that piece can actually further dissociate me from all the psychological challenges in my life and further distance me from the, the challenging relationships. And I'll think I'm just doing it from a spiritual lens, and but actually I'm cutting myself off from all the complexity of, of life. You know, the, as one poet called it, the brilliant imperfections of love. There's, there's a never ending complexity to what's going on here on earth. And I think the melding of those two is, is incredibly critical. At least it has been for my life. And so we, that's a kind of a core philosophy that we teach everyone at camp. And I would, I would hope everyone in the world would hold a lens like that. I don't know if you can read this, but it, it feels very aligned with what you're Amazing. To. It's a, I am perfect as I am, or what, what does it say? I, yeah, I am perfect as I am and I have a long way to go. And, and holding, holding both of those to be true at the same time, it, in a lot of ways, that's what I'm hearing with this, this integration of psychological and spiritual is that, yes, I'm, I am exactly who I am meant to be in this moment. And I, there's also this longing to keep on going and keep on learning and growing. So. I, that's, that's a reminder that I have right here all the time. It's been especially important as we've mentioned a couple of times now with having a newborn, it's, it's brought up a lot of the more, uh, childish parts of me and the younger parts of me being around my four month old. And yeah, it's, it's just so important to, to hold all the things really that we've spoken about in this conversation and. There's just just a, just a couple more things I want to ask you about. There's there's this curiosity around. I think we'll have to do a part two another time because there's there's so many open loops that I I would love to yeah. get into you with. But yeah, bound boundaries. This you you've really opened this new view of of what boundaries are, and and I think a lot of people in the coaching space come from the place of we were the ones who were or whether you're getting into healing work, a lot of times we are, we are learning to communicate boundaries where we, we try to close everything off ourselves. At least that's my projection of a lot of people in this space. And a curiosity I have that maybe we can plug for another conversation is around the people on the opposite side who, I know a lot of people who are really terrible at, at communicating boundaries, but have no problem at all communicating a lot about what they're when they're rubbed the wrong way about something or if they disagree or, you know, think things like that. And I think that's an interesting conversation, but anyway, I wanted to ask you this question because in, in preparation for the conversation, I always ask in the intake form, what's one question you would love to be asked. And you wrote the following, what do you feel is the biggest thing missing in our scientific understanding of reality? And I know this isn't a, rapid fire question, but it's, it's something that I would, would love to hear you 
talk at least a, a little bit about or like maybe plug another seed for something that we would talk about in a in a separate conversation if, if we don't already have enough fertile ground for a round two i'm giving you even more opportunity here yeah. i wanted to ask it though yeah i i mean i obviously love the question i'm how how are you connecting that with the boundary question that you were bringing up right before sometimes it's just like i want to give a a kind of an opening into what's happening in my mind. And it's like, okay. that was a curiosity that if if we had another hour and a half, I would want to unpack the, maybe call it the other pole of, you know, someone who mm. has a hard time with boundaries and from a place of, I, I couldn't communicate. And so I made everything my fault. Mm. And then maybe there's, there's another person who is has no problem at all talking about whatever whatever's going on in their mind but also is ineffective at communicating about yeah. it right so yeah okay has nothing yeah, to do so with it all with the question but it's just the, i i'm i'm psyched i'm psyched to talk about both um i think the way that i look actually there's a way i can kind of dovetail these two together includes them together um when someone is holding in all their anger they're on one side of a polarity their anger comes up and it always gets repressed or depressed. Now, the other side of the polarity is the person who's yelling on the street and throwing all their anger at the other person. Now, neither of those is actually skillfully harnessing the intelligence and the anger. They're doing their best. Everyone's doing their best. You know, there's no like problem with that or judgment of that. But there's a there's a kind of a knife edge between those two, which is that when the energy comes up, it clarifies and I can skillfully share what I am and I'm not okay with. And then that can come out with like, hey, that doesn't feel good. I'd really prefer to be spoken to in X, Y, Z. And so a lot of the world, all of our emotions, as far as I can tell, in the manifest world exists in these polarities. You know, when I when I have trouble, do I latch on and depend overly on my partner to solve the problem? Or when I have trouble, do I get ultra independent and not get any help from anyone? Actually, there's an interdependent place right on the knife edge between those. So there's, you know, neither person is, is really skillfully landing. And there's a, a never ending, you know, growth edge, long way to go, you know, never ending evolution of knife edge there of how to more and more skillfully utilize the emotions as they arise. And, and just like with a baby, they should arise, they should inform, and then they should dissipate. And generally, things should be okay, you know? And that's, that's where the things get stuck is, you know, I can, if I channel the intelligence in one of those emotions, the emotion will last about two minutes. And if I don't, I can spend 30 years resenting somebody, literally 30 years, and I can develop all sorts of sickness because my whole day is spent resenting somebody. And I'm holding my whole body like, well, why is this person, you know, and there's, there's clinical studies now, you know, especially from somatic therapies of like having single sessions with some people that are holding something like that for 40 years, having them actually get in touch with the unexpressed feeling from being a six year old and having the whole chain just dissolve. And it's like, oh, wow, that happened in two hours sometimes. Like, are you kidding me? This was 40 years of a, you know, a psychological and somatic challenge. So that, that, that's the, the first part is kind of like life exists in polarities and one easy way to look at where my, my work is or where one's work on their evolutionary path is, is like just checking, like, where do I sit on this polarity? Do I overexpress or underexpress my anger in relationship? 
Do I over-depend or under-depend in relationship, et cetera, et cetera. So I can look for what would be, you know, what would be the perfect example of, of someone from history and how they would work with this thing. And like for me, Gandhi is usually anger. It's like he never yelled at anybody. He actually let himself and others be beaten so that there was no violence in his acts. And of course, India declared their freedom. You know, it's like, of course, with that kind of stance, like it's unstoppable. There's, you know, there's no stopping the clarity. So the the segue for the other question about like, what is the scientific world really missing the most is, is that that's a passion project of mine. And the, the segue is these polarities. As far as I can tell, and a lot of people have said this, I'm not, I'm not reinventing the wheel or I, I'm only reinventing the wheel from others work is like, Everything in the manifest universe has these polarities, you know, everything down from like magnetic charge being a positive and negative charge, which there's no like, you know, in some sense, that's an arbitrary decision to call one of them positive and call one of them. You could have switched the names and everything would work out okay. And, but there's some kind of polarity that exists, an electric charge. And then there's like, you know, our psychological charges come in these polarities. And I've been spending the last couple of years getting in touch with this frustration and I didn't even know what the frustration was at first. And it took me a long time to realize that, you know, I, as I said, I, I majored in physics. I learned everything about quantum mechanics, you know, three terms in quantum mechanics and studying like just, just what anyone studying physics is going to learn about the universe. And it took me a long time to really get clear on the fact that there's nothing in our current scientific model of physics that leads to how experience is happening. The very fact that this is an experience and, and I can say, well, it's an emergent phenomenon, you know, there's their brain circuits and whatever, but that's all a conceptual understanding of an emergence, but like no one actually can explain that chasm. It's a gigantic chasm for there to be no experience of any kind and then there be experience and, and it's way beyond the scope of, of the last, you know, five minutes of a podcast to, to get into that. But someone can really start to like do the thought experiment of like, okay, a universe has no experience in it. Like what is the first moment of experience? Like what, what, how does that even happen? You know, or, or what does that look like? And, and we're learning a lot about emergence, but that chasm is quite a grand Canyon of a, of a jump to make. And what I started to realize, and once again, I'm not, not, none of this part is original or anything. It's just, I started to realize that everything in physics is nouns. There's protons and gravitons and electrons. And those nouns are, are doing actions that are observed from the outside. And there's no way for nouns doing actions on the outside to emerge into direct experience happening. And if, if someone's honest with themselves, like really you got to be brutally honest because it, there's so much learning of, of what is real. But if you actually do the thought experiment and you say, okay, like which is more primary things or experience. And you really are honest. You have to come to the conclusion that experience is the, all that I know for sure. Because Right now, you're appearing as an experience. I call you a person, but that's a collection of different experiences, touch experiences and sight experiences and sound experiences. And when I, when I really started to let myself be 
deeply perplexed by this fact. It got me doubly perplexed by the fact that we have things like a periodic table of the elements. And I can say, okay, this computer is exactly made out of da 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 And I don't have anything like that for experience. There's no map for the dimensions of my experience. And yet, like everything about the well-being of my life depends on my experience. It depends on how my emotions are going, what kind of thoughts I'm having, what are the sensations going through my body. And those are dimensions of experience that are, you know, maybe not foundationally, utterly at the core, totally independent of each other, but they are at least distinct as I look at the, the nature of my experience. I can definitely see that the, the sensory experience of sight happening is quite a different experience than the thought process happening inside my head. And so I ended up spending a good deal of time over the last three or four years trying to build a map of the dimensions of experience. And right now it's a seven level map. There's seven dimensions of experience that I've been able to find. And I've been trying to not arbitrarily choose them or choose them based on someone saying, oh yeah, emotions or whatever, but actually build an evolutionary and mathematical model that relates all those dimensions to each other and actually says, okay, well, how is imagination and thought, for example, mathematically related to the sense of perspective that we have, for example? Like we think that we live in a three-dimensional world, but actually the more that you look into it, that also seems to be a, me a method of our thinking and not a, a fundamental you know, principle of the universe. It's a method by which we think, as Einstein said. So... This is a long roundabout answer to your question, but I, I would say the biggest thing that science is, is still currently like perplexed by and paradoxical around is the nature of experience, not being inclusive of the model, much less the core of the model of our, of our universe as an experiential universe of awareness. And what I'm really the most excited about is how can a map like that actually give us insights into not only our own mental health, like, like I'm going through a challenge, but I can actually distill what that challenge is in terms of how it's affecting all the levels of my being as an experiential being. But also for someone like me who was super skeptical about things like spirituality and now take it as a, a utterly for granted uh, insight into the nature of my life, how can I share that story. How can someone actually understand that spiritual experience, mystical experience, a sense of unity with all things is, is not a hallucinatory experience, but actually one that is the basis of all of our experiences. And you're actually, when someone has that experience, they're actually getting in touch with the, the ground of what they always have been, not some alternate reality, not some alternate dimension. And I think that, you know, I've been able to sit down with a couple people, show them this map, and then actually show how does it relate to psychological healing and spiritual development and have some of them just within 20 or 30 minutes actually have a totally shifted understanding and openness to spirituality that's not in any way in conflict anymore with the nature of the universe and physics, but actually it just makes total sense. You know, if something like three-dimensional space is a method of our thinking, and you can get in touch with the aspects of our thinking and awareness that are prior to the arising of three-dimensional space, then that's going to feel quite a bit different than this default human experience, but it's actually happening right now. It's the part of your perceptual pathway before things like three-dimensionality and time are built. And so when people talk about 
getting in touch with something that is infinitely vast and boundless and timeless, they're not necessarily talking about some hallucination. They might actually be talking about the nature of your experience right now before you add time and space into that as methods of cognition. So that's like incredibly fascinating to me. I don't think that would ever end. It's just like, there's so much richness there to explore and a sense of possibility. And had I been shown that map 15, 20 years ago, it would have saved me like five years of skepticism on, uh, on both of those paths. Well, Jeff, I think this is a, a great place to end. And it, I would invite folks to to check you out at, at sleepawake.camp, correct? Is that the best place? Sleepawake.camp. Yeah, it's a pun. So it's not sleepaway, sleepawake.camp. That's right. I'll make sure to link to that in the show notes and it'll it'll probably be in the title of the episode. It'll probably be in the introduction of the episode and I typically at the end of the interview ask, what does it mean to you to live a meaningful life? But I, I don't think we really need to do that. We've we've really uncovered all that today. <laughs> and so I, I just want to take the opportunity as we close here to thank you for your time and just hmm, there, there's so much that you bring to this work. And I, I love the way that your that your brain integrates with your heart and your spirit and the you know we were talking about three-dimensionality at, at the end here at least you were really riffing on it and i i in sleep awake and in the way that you the, the vantage point that you bring into this work it feels like a singular voice in a lot of ways around the just like the totality of the human experience from so many dimensions not only you know, in in this really kind of complex way that you're able to like your brain is far more developed than my brain, but you are also able to articulate this in a way that is approachable, right? Like I, I, I think that a lot of people that you probably would have associated with at MIT when you were in school, they they probably came across as to to circle back to hierarchy here of like I am better than you, and so my communication style is going to to be in such a way that you won't even be able to reach me. And that will be me asserting my intelligence over you. And there's a way that, you know, I think anyone from any number of various different backgrounds would, could listen to this conversation and go, wow, this guy is both extremely intelligent and also approachable in, in the way that he engages with his life and his work. And it was just a, a real treat to research you and get to know more about what you're up to and, and to, have this long form conversation with you that leaves a lot of loops unclosed. And, and so we'll, we'll have to continue another time, but I just really appreciate you being here today. Yeah. Thanks so much, Mike. I really appreciate you, you calling that out. Like, uh, you know, Feynman, Richard Feynman, the great physicist said, if I can't explain something to a five-year-old and have them understand it, then I don't understand it well enough. And I definitely see the times where my mind is still not clear enough about something to make it easy to understand. So it's definitely a North star for me is to, to try to keep myself in check in that way and can keep myself more and more honest about what I do and don't know. Mm -hmm. So I appreciate your noticing that. And once again, just really appreciate that you are, yeah, deeply curious and also deeply attuned at the same time. And it makes for a really engaging conversation. Well, thank you again. And to everyone who's listening, wishing you a joyous and peaceful, we want both, right? And connected rest of your day or evening, whenever you're listening and sending you lots of love. 
Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to Mike's Search for Meaning. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode with your friends, and leave a review. I look forward to seeing you next time, my friends. And until then, stay safe, stay well, and keep living with purpose. Peace.